If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 8th chapter, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, as we continue our study through the Word. So as we've been working through this letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthians, we're reminded that he's answering a letter that he had received. And, and in the letter, there are various different questions. And so Paul is kind of working his way through answering those questions. You remember the very first issue that he dealt with and was the issue of the competition within the body and the way that they weren't serving each other. The, the body of Christ is to be a community of servants listen where everybody is serving each other that's the highest ideal if you can imagine a, a, a church where everybody is involved serving one another you have the picture now that Paul has in mind VBS this last week uh, approached this our, our church did an amazing job of, of, of serving these kids we had listen to this over a hundred and forty servants were here taking care of these kids and blessing them and then watching the, the servanthood, the friendships, the, the, the unity that took place within the body of Christ. Now, when we serve, serve serving others, first of all, it, it changes, it impacts the person that you're serving. They're, they're changed by it. You as a servant uh, are experiencing God's love flowing through you, and so it impacts the person that is serving, and that it impacts the community of servants itself by, uh, by exhorting and encouraging and inviting and creating a culture of servanthood. And so God is wanting you to experience that and is continuing to invite you into servanthood. And so Jesus set that example when he said that, you know, he and himself didn't come to be served but to serve and then he invites us to follow us so last week was just a great opportunity to be able to come in and, and to serve together and so uh, that was amazing in the church in Corinth they're not interested in serving each other the world isn't interested in serving each other. The world wants to be served, and they're competing and fighting with the, one another. Now, that same attitude had entered into the, uh, the church, and, and so Paul is really kind of dealing with that overarching you know, attitude that, that was there in the church. They were competing by attaching themselves to different teachers and to different leaders and, and believing that they're more spiritual now if they're attached to, to the better leader or to the better pastor. And Paul says we're, we're to be attached to one person only. That's Jesus Christ. He's the one that we are to be attached to. And, and you remember that after that he started to talk to them about spiritual maturity and, and they had elevated tolerance to be a, a noble quality and and that that now was love they were letting sin grievous sin go unchecked in the church and then they were saying you know look at how tolerant we are isn't that amazing and Paul says you think I commend you for that and he talked about how sin is like cancer you can't just let cancer spread you need to immediately contain it and remove it that that is always the approach with cancer and sin is just spiritual cancer Answer. And, and so Paul instructs them, you know, and corrects them in that uh, area. We see that they also were very litigious. Everyone was suing each other. And, and Paul says, what a bad witness that is for two believers to go out into the world and then seek righteousness, from, you know, from a court, from a, from a judge. He says, don't, don't, 
Don't you have wise people within the, uh, within the church? And it's a bad testimony to go fight Christian with Christian in, in front of the world and let them you know, witness that. And so he exhorted them to, to resolve it through Christian means and not to use the courts. And, you know, and then Paul, last time we looked in chapter 7, Paul comes to the issue, you know, is what is God's plan for physical intimacy between a man and a woman. Now, remember that Corinth was just a sex-saturated culture. And, and so they had come out of this paganism and, and just living in this culture. And w what is God's plan for sex? Now, is marriage, you know, first question that they had is, is it okay to just stay single, if you're single, is it okay to just stay single and serve the Lord? Is that, and once again, when they're asking these questions, they're trying to find out which is better so that they can be the super Christian. They wanna know what the super Christian looks like so that they now can go and be that super Christian. They can be better than everybody else at being a Christian. So, so e even the motivation of where they're coming from. So the question was, Am I more of a super Christian if I stay unmarried and I just completely serve the Lord? Or, you know, is it a requirement to get married? Now, remember, we talked that the Jews, they, they had to get married. It was taught that if you weren't married, if you were a man by the time you were 20 years old, that you were sinning. Yeah, and so now the question was, does that carry over into Christianity? Do I have to be married or can I, you know, remain celibate? And Paul says, look, you're not doing, if you're celibate, if, you, if you're single and you feel God calling you to stay, you know, single and to just serve the Lord in your singleness, he says, that's not wrong. He says, but that's not the plan of God for most people. For most people, the plan of God is marriage. That's the, the normal path that God has for you. So what's the best path for you? Paul says, what are you called to? Now, if you're trying, if you're supposed to be married and, and youth elevate celibacy to this level that you're going to go and try and be a super saint by being celibate, but God hasn't called you to it, then he's not going to equip you for that. And, and you are going to burn now in lust because you're trying to accomplish something that you haven't been called to. So obedience to God is what matters. And so if you're called to be single, be single. If you're called to be married, be married. Now, what about sex? Now, once again, you know, there were those that were teaching that sex is a carnal pleasure and anything that is carnal isn't spiritual. And so you're a more spiritual person, even if you get married, you're more spiritual if you don't have sex. Uh, and, and so now Paul, Paul is writing on what, what is God's plan for physical intimacy. And we talked about that last time, about how God's desire for us is to be physically intimate with uh, one another, that that is his plan, that sex, we talked about, is God's wedding present. It's a gift that's given, so he created it. He created pleasure and he gave it to us. But once again, a wedding present opened inside of and used within marriage. Now, with regards to being a sexual partner, what is to be the instruction in that area? And you'll remember that Paul talked about that you don't have authority over your body. And she has authority over yours and you have authority over hers. And we liken that unto a, a, a kitchen, you know, that we are to give the affection, it says, that are due her and, and likewise her to uh, 
to him that marriage is that bonding of body, soul, and spirit. We are a trinity. And so there is to be this, this unity there. We talked about the, the, that our kitchens uh, are to be always open. And we talked about the, uh, that the menu is to be a full menu, that you are serving the other person uh, in the intimacy that you are experiencing. And so in a kitchen, you want to give them what they want and you want to be able to give them when they want. And so for Christians, you know, we are to, uh, to have our kitchens open and to have full menus. And so that is God's, that's God's design. That is God's uh, plan. Two servants fully serving one another. And, you know, we talked about how every single person on the face of the earth should want a Christian husband. And every single man on the face of the earth should want a, a Christian wife. And so the, the beauty of what God has called us to in the intimacy of uh, the marriage. As we come now, you know, he continued to, to talk about if you do get married and, and now or you find yourself married and you get saved and now your spouse isn't saved, the question was, what do we do there? Are we supposed to divorce a non-believing spouse? And Paul says, absolutely not, that that's not grounds for uh, a divorce, just them not being a believer. He says that if they're willing to stay with you and, and to be you know, in your house uh, and continue you know, in the marriage, then you're absolutely to, to stay with them, to let your light shine into the, the home. God is going to you know, use you as that instrument of, of, of light and who knows what will happen when that light continues to, to shine in the home. He, he talked about you know, being content with whatever season and station in life when you get saved. It's not about your status in the world. Your salvation is about your eternal relationship with God. So be content. Always move towards freedom. That's a principle in the Bible. God always wants us to be free if we can and to who the sun sets free is, free indeed. And so, you know, if you had, remember that many were slaves, most people were slaves and in Rome, you could purchase your freedom oftentimes as if you can, that's a good thing. Uh, but once again, your Christianity is not about your social status in, uh, in the world, contentment in what God has called you uh, to. And, and then he talked to the unmarried, talked to the singles and also to the widowed. And, you know, he, he gave some counsel about staying single in this present situation. He says, because of the, uh, the current distress. And so we talked about how this isn't a, a biblical command. He said that he's just giving you some wisdom. Paul saw the persecution against the Christians and, and Nero was on the throne. And, and it is not long after Paul writes this letter that, uh, that the Christian persecution be, begins to where the Christians are literally being thrown to the lions and they are just being executed. And, and Paul says, you know, this might not be the best time to get married right now because you might be fleeing, you, you, you might have, you know, tremendous difficulty and, 
Uh, you know, and so, but he says that, but if you do get married, it's not a sin. He's not commanding. He's not forbidding it by any stretch. He's just using some practical uh, wisdom. You know, he says it's better with the persecution coming, better to maybe just focus on the Lord and your relationship with the Lord and, and, and tighten that uh, up with the, with the storm that is coming. As we head into this uh, eighth chapter here, we see that, uh, that now Paul deals with probably one of the, the, the most controversial subjects in, in the letter that he received from the Corinthian church. And, and the question that is being asked is dealing with the issue of the meat that is being offered to the idols. And, and are we allowed to eat that meat or are we not allowed to eat that meat? So let's set the backdrop of the question so we understand where the Corinthians are, are coming from. In the Corinth, as in the Greek cities that were controlled underneath the Roman times, they were polytheistic. They had many, many different gods, and, and they believed in, you know, in all these different gods, and, and, but also they believed in all kinds of demons as well. And so they believed that there were demons everywhere. And they were afraid. And one of the things that you didn't want is demons were always trying to get inside of you. And so you wanted to make sure that demons didn't get inside of you. If a demon got inside of you, you were going to be harmed physically and then your mind was going to become unhinged. And so uh, this is now what they were concerned with. Now, one of the ways that demons could get inside of you, this is what they believed, was that demons would attach themselves to food and then when you ate the food, they came inside you attached to the food. And this is now uh, how they got inside of you. So what they would do is, is that whenever you were going to slaughter an animal, you would go to the temple and you would have the animal slaughtered there at the temple. Now you're kind of offering that animal to that God, to a benevolent God, and you would take a third of the animal and the, that third of the animal would then be burned up to that God. A third of it would come back to you to, to celebrate with, and then a third would go to the priest that had made the sacrifices. But when the priest is offering that sacrifice, what's happening is, is that benevolent God is chasing off all the bad spirits off of the food so that when you eat it now, you are not going to be ingesting demons. And so, you know, this is now what they believed. And, and so the temples that were all over the place, the pagan temples, they also served as the, as the banqueting halls and also as restaurants uh, as well. When you were going to throw a wedding, it would be in a temple. You would take your sacrifices, the, they would be sacrificed and slaughtered. The meat now was considered you know, to be demon-free. You would banquet up and everybody would come. And so the weddings and the birthday parties and the social events, those would happen inside the temples. Now. On top of that, the meat now that had been offered as sacrifices, the priest, he's getting a third of all of that meat. And of course, that's way more than he could ever eat. And so when he's done, at the end of the day, he takes his meat, brings it to Vaughn's and sells it to Vaughn's. Vaughn's sticks it in the, in the butcher's market. And so there in Vaughn's, now you have, you know, the, the homegrown, free-range, grass-fed, you know, and the, that's right next to... Now that that came from the from the temple it, uh, itself, and so uh, now on top.
top of that, there were buffets that were there at the temple as well. You could stop in and, you know, and have a barbecue and enjoy some food and, uh, and all of that. So here are the Christians, and, and now their questions are, are, are multiple. You know, are we allowed to go when, when my friend has a wedding and I'm invited and we're going to go and they're going to now, you know, have a banquet? Am I allowed to go to that and, and eat the meat there in the banquet? Or do I have to now stop going to all the social functions? Am I going to be removed from all of the social engagement that is happening there inside of the, uh, of the temples? And... A second question, you know, uh, would be, am I allowed to just stop in and grab a quick lunch, you know, at the, uh, in the temple restaurant that, that's there or that stuff? And then what about the meat that's being sold in the market? Am I allowed to be able to buy that meat because it's been tainted? You know, is it tainted because it's been offered to these idols or... We know that idols aren't even real, that there aren't any other gods. There's only one God. And so because of that knowledge, am I free to just partake in any way, shape, or form because I have knowledge. I, I know that, that this meat, uh, that there's nothing, there's no demons that, are, that attach themselves to, to meat and all of that. And so my knowledge sets me free and I have freedom in Christ. Now, they know that they're not underneath the dietary restrictions uh, any longer, and so they, they've worked through that. But the question now about here in Corinth, you know, what should my relationship with the meat that's offered to idols? Now, we don't have any meat that's offered to idols. I went to Vaughn's. I couldn't find any um, there in the case. So, you know, this really doesn't deal with us per se, but... The issue that's behind that's relevant to every single one of us, uh, that is Christian liberty, okay? The area of Christian liberty. It, it, it's easy when you've got things like lying, stealing, cheating, killing, adultery. We know the Word of God says about that. So the absolute commands that we're to not do, we know what those are. And, and then we're exhorted into other things, worshiping and praying and you know, all of these things. So we're exhorted to those. So we have the, the negative instructions, we have the positive instructions. Then, then we've got the middle ground where there isn't anything specifically mentioned. Uh, and so this has been a, a, a battleground for Christians from, from the very beginning in these areas uh, now of, you know, uh, 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 of, of Christian, you know, uh, uh, of, in the areas of Christian liberties. And, uh, and so this is something that, that we can look at here in these scriptures and, uh, and talk about these things uh, here today. Let's see how Paul approaches this topic here and what we can glean from it uh, for ourselves. He says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge and knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So in the letter, they're basically taking the position that they want Paul to ratify the fact that since we know that idols aren't anything, that 
the, the, there, there's no impact on the meat uh, itself, and we have that knowledge, so we should be able to walk in that freedom of just knowing that the, the, the meat isn't tainted by the idols. And so, you know, Paul says, we, we all have knowledge. He says, you know, you're, you're looking at it through the lens of your personal liberty, your personal freedom, and you're using knowledge only as the filter through which you are examining this. And so he says, knowledge is a good thing. I mean, it's a good lens to look through, but it shouldn't be the only lens because the problem with knowledge is that knowledge puffs up. He says there's another lens that you need to look at it through, and that is the lens of love. Now, you'll remember that Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest of all the commandments? He said, love God, and then the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these two things, the rest of all of the law and the commandments are built. So the heart of all of the commandments are love. When the new covenant is is entered into and jesus says a new commandment that i give to you that you love one another that that is the basic principle lens uh, that we are to look at one another and to look at life is through that lens of love they were looking through the lens of knowledge but not through the lens of love and so he says knowledge what does knowledge do it makes you prideful Knowledge puffs uh, up a, a person, but what does love do? Love builds uh, up. And so a big difference between knowledge and, uh, and love. And so we see here in verse 2, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And so the, the person that's puffed up with knowledge, they think that you know, they're confident in their knowledge on the situation. But he says that, that, that when you really begin to learn, you re- really begin to learn that uh, there's so much more to learn that you haven't even scraped the surface. A truly edified person has some idea uh, of that. I, I, I love this definition. Someone once said that, you know, defined knowledge is the process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance into the conscious state of ignorance. <laughs> you know, in the beginning, I thought I really knew everything. And then you begin to learn that you don't know anything yet. And so now you are consciously aware of your ignorance. And, and that is actually a step forward. That's what Paul is saying. If you think you know it all, you really don't know anything yet. And certainly not as we ought to know. It's interesting because of the incredible explosion of knowledge that we've experienced certainly in, in my lifetime and, and in the generation that has gone before us. In this next generation, the knowledge is continuing to accelerate. It's it's interesting if you just look at the the first 2,000 years since since Christ. So the first 20 centuries. We're in the 21st century right now. You look at the first 20 centuries. The first 19 centuries. So from the time of Christ, 19 centuries. So 1899. They basically either walked or they sailed or they rode horses for 1,900 years. And then in one century, one 100-year stretch in the 20th century, they invented cars, planes, jets, and spacecraft and went to the moon. 
from walking to a man on the moon in 100 year span. The explosion uh, of knowledge, and, and that was in the 20th century. We're in the 21st century now. And we have seen the advent of the internet, the explosion of computers and of knowledge and, and, and global communications and, and, and all. And, and now you basically are a click away from information. And, and so it is just amazing the, the knowledge that, that we are living with. The, mapping of the genetic code, the, uh, and now we have got artificial intelligence. And, and so the question isn't just knowledge, but what do you do with that knowledge, and then how do you use that knowledge properly? Now, the Department of Defense, I just heard that with artificial intelligence, that of course we will be using artificial intelligence in warfare. But they are concerned because there are moral decisions that need to be made uh, on the battlefield in, in instances. And so what they're talking about is, is that with the AI, that they're going to need to put a, 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 an ethics behind it to be able to make those battlefield decisions. And so what they're talking about is using the Judeo-Christian ethic as the moral base behind the artificial intelligence that is going to be in our weaponry defending our uh, nation. And so, you know, here we are, the concerns about, you know, artificial intelligence and, and all of these things. And so, so knowledge and the explosion of knowledge is, is something that, that we have experienced. And, and that was something in the book of Daniel that it talks about, that in the last days there is going to be an explosion uh, of knowledge that is going to take place. And, and certainly we are living in the last days and certainly we can check that box of seeing the explosion of knowledge. But knowledge in and of itself uh, is not the only lens that you can look through life with. And so the lens of love, this, uh, this is what is important. And so, you know, Paul talking about knowledge, he says, you know, knowledge is good, but let's talk about the most important knowledge that there is. What is the most important knowledge uh, that there is? And Paul says in verse 3, and if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. He goes to the knowledge of God and the omniscience of God. And there's two aspects of that that are just absolutely mind-boggling. When you look at the, the knowledge, and they're saying that the knowledge is increasing in the world at an exponential rate. And what that means is that every five years, the knowledge of man is doubling. Everything that we've learned from Adam uh, all the way up until now, in five years from now, we will double that uh, again. That's how fast knowledge is exploding. And then five years later, double that again. And five years later, double that again. And so this exponential explosion of knowledge that is taking place. But mm, here's the thing, that, that we are only discovering what God already knows. <laughs> That God knows all of this, knows every single thing, and we can we can double and double and double and double, and we're still not even going to begin 
to approach uh, the knowledge uh, of God. Now, here Paul brings it personal. And, and he says, as a child of God, do you recognize that what God knows about you, what the Word of God teaches us? God knows what kind of sleep you had last night. God knows what time your eyes flashed open this morning. God knows the number of hairs on your head. He is intimate with your, with your thoughts, with your risings up and your lying down. Of every single person, God's intimate knowledge and, and, and the vastness of that knowledge. And, and so Paul says, if you really want to be impressed with knowledge, think about the knowledge of God towards each and in every one of us. And then the glorious part of that is that one day we're going to know God to the same degree that we're known by God. And so the incredible intimacy that we are going to experience with God. He now, having dealt with the lens that they're looking at this issue through of, of knowledge versus love, he, he now comes to it, verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. So he affirms that their theology is correct, that, 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 that all of these other pagan you know, temples and, and deities, there's no reality behind them. There's, there is only one God, and, and there is no other God but, but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. And so... And Paul, you know, says even if they're, they're so-called gods, they're not real gods. Idols uh, are not competing gods. There is no reality behind them. And there is only one God, the Father. He says, of whom are all things and we for him. So there is one true God, and he has come to us on this earth in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, and we are brought to the Father through the Son, and everything comes from the Father, and believers, we exist uh, for the Father. And so this is a, a powerful and a clear affirmation of the equality of the essence of God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 7 he says, However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So he says, yes, what's the reality behind this? The reality behind this situation is that there is no gods that this meat is being offered to, and there's no demons that attach themselves to meat to get into a person's body. He says, but so you're correct in that thinking. He says, but 
uh, not everybody understands that completely. So, you know, you have these Christians that have just gotten saved and their whole life they've been believing this and they've been afraid of these demons attaching themselves to food and, and, and all, and, and now they get saved. But they still have superstitions, you know? They, they, they still want to carry their, their lucky rabbit's foot, you know, in, in their pocket even, even once they're saved. I've always been surprised that, you know, that a rabbit's foot what was what brought you good luck because that foot certainly didn't bring that rabbit good luck, uh, you know, at, at all. But, you know, the, the superstitions and then holding on to your superstitions even after you're, you're saved. And it's like you, you know that that lucky rabbit's foot isn't anything and most of the time you don't reach for it, but you have a big test today. So I'm sticking it in my back pocket. I'm going to pray and hold my rabbit's foot and, and go take my test and it's like you know you're you're getting there you're working your way you know towards it but you're not fully free yet of those of those superstitions that once had had controlled you and so paul is saying yes there there is no reality behind that that rabbit's foot but but not everybody is walking in the fullness of that knowledge yet in the fullness, you know, of that freedom. And so, you know, they are the ones that, that have a, you know, a, a weak conscience. Their, their conscience being weak now is defiled. So what, what does he mean by that? And what's a weak conscience? Does that mean that you have to get your your, your conscience strong, you know, to, that it's not functioning very well, that it's kind of like a baby conscience, and then you have to, you know, kind of kind of get it mature? And the answer is no, that's not what a weak conscience is. God gives us a conscience, and that conscience is the internal mechanism of right and wrong. And in the book of Romans, it talks about the fact that the least amount of light that's given to every single person is nature and your conscience. So you have a fully functioning conscience. The problem is they didn't have the word of God yet in them. And so a weak conscience is someone who doesn't know the word of God yet. So you can't be convicted of the word if you haven't read the word yet, if you don't know the word. So these are new believers that, that don't know the word of God yet. And so they have got this weak conscience. So he's talking about, you know, weakened knowledge. And so... Here he says that, you know, that, that the problem is, is that, you know, they're being told by Christians that they can eat that meat. And, and, and so the, these are the respected people that are mature and they look up to, but when they eat the meat, they still are afraid that there's demons on that meat and, uh, and all. And, and, and so they, you know, they, they, they eat it, but then they feel bad because they ate it because they really didn't want to eat it, but they see the other. And so they're doing things that they don't feel that they should do, but they're being told that they shouldn't be bothered by it, but it's still bothering them. And so now what they have is they're walking around with a guilty conscience. They did it, 
but now they feel guilty about it. And they're being told that they shouldn't feel guilty about it. So that makes them feel even more guilty that they're now feeling guilty and they shouldn't be feeling guilty. And, and, and so now here, you know, is the situation, you know, their conscience being weak, they're, they're eating, and now they're, they have a, a, a guilty conscience. And, and so Paul pulls back, verse 8. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. And, and so what is our relationship to food as a Christian? Now, the Jews, you remember, they have the dietary restrictions. And so God said, these are the foods that you're not allowed to eat, and these are the foods that you are allowed to eat. So Eating food and not eating food was an act of worship to the Jews. Peter grew up his entire life looking at all food as clean or unclean. And you wanted to obey God. Obeying God is what commends you to God. And so for Peter, it was staying away from the foods that God had said you're not to eat. But underneath the new covenant, God removed all dietary restrictions. And, and you remember how that happened. Remember Paul was in Joppa. He's at the home of Simon the Tanner and he's waiting for lunch and he's upstairs on the balcony and, he, and a vision. And in the vision, the sheet comes down with all of these unclean animals on it. And then suddenly the Lord in the vision says to Peter, Peter, rise, kill and eat. I want you to eat all these unclean. And Paul's, I mean, Peter's like, oh my gosh, Lord, I've never eaten any, any of these. You know, I'm, uh, the, uh, Lord, I, I, I don't want to eat what's unclean. And three times, and then the Lord says, what I have cleansed, you're not to call uh, unclean. And so, you know, so I'm more commended to God if I eat this or if I don't eat this. And but now we see Paul underneath the, the new covenant. There, there's freedom. There, there is absolute freedom. The, the, the dietary restrictions for God's people that had been given at Mount Sinai now uh, have ended. And so we, we don't approach God with food and we're not separated from God by food. Obedience to God is what is important. And food has now been liberated in the new covenant. So should they be able to eat meat off for titles? Absolutely. Is there freedom in that? Yes. But uh, he says now in verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. And so here we now see uh, that the liberty that we have, which is a good thing, still needs to be run through the filter of love. And that is now where Paul in the beginning says knowledge isn't the only thing. It's knowledge plus love. And so it's got to pass both tests. It passes the knowledge test, but the love test, it's not passing. It is now causing a stumbling block to those who are weak. He says in verse 10, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to uh, idols? And, uh, and so 
you know, I'm struggling with, you know, the eating this meat that's offered to idols, but, you know, I walk by and, and there is a spiritual mature brother from the, uh, from the church and he's in the restaurant in the temple there and he's eating an all-you-can-eat buffet. And, you know, and, and now he says there's nothing wrong. You, you should, you know, eat this also. And I'm like, well, is it okay? Can I really? And, you know, and now I, I, I go in and I start eating, but I'm just conflicted, you know, over this now. And, you know, he's just, he's just going for seconds and thirds and fourths. He's having a ball and, you know, but, but I, I, I am struggling. And so, you know, he says that, you know, you're emboldening people, you know, to enter into something that they've got, you know, that, that, that they're struggling with, with their conscience. He says in verse 11, and because of your knowledge, because of your freedom, he says, shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So remember that, you know, the church is the body of Christ. And so when you're hurting somebody in the body of Christ, you're hurting Christ. And, and so he says in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And so here we see that Paul now, you know, says, follow me as I follow Christ. And, and Paul says, when you look at the, the meat and the issue of your freedom to eat that meat, does it pass the knowledge test? Yes. But if I use my freedom to harm you, then that's a misuse uh, of uh, my freedom. And, and so I am not allowed to, to hurt uh, somebody. I, you have the freedom to wave your arms all that you want. In worship, you can wave your arms, but your freedom to wave your arm ends where my nose begins. <laughs> and, and so if, if your freedom whacks me in the face, that, that was a misuse of, you know, of your freedom. And so uh, here we have signed kind of that same, you know, issue here. As we close our study, I, you know, I want to move back to verse one where, you know, he talks about the fact that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So in our culture today, you know, we've got these areas of, you know, where the scripture doesn't talk about them specifically. And so we've got the, you know, the Christian liberty, you've got the legalists, and, and then you've got those that are, you know, seeking the, the liberty. And so, you know, what are those issues and kind of where we are? I think that in the Christian community over, you know, the last century, you, you have all types of different, you know, you know, is it okay to chew to tobacco is it okay to smoke playing cards you know uh music secular music are you allowed to listen to it or are you not allowed to listen to it and you know these are things that aren't in the bible that, that, that doesn't say and there's those people that say hey i've got no problem you've got alcohol consumption the bible doesn't explicitly forbid the consumption of alcohol but it strongly warns against drunkenness and so 
Christians have different views uh, on this, and some say total abstinence, and others believe that consumption is permissible. You have media choices, books and movies, and should Christians be going to movies, or you know, can they only see a G or a PG or an R, and you, you have these different beliefs, and, and, but yet there is nothing in the Bible about if you're allowed to watch TV or a movie, so you're into these, to, to these areas areas now and you know we've got tattoos and piercings and you know are those biblical those free expression what if you have a a verse of the bible tattooed on you and that's your witness and your free expression but others say you're not allowed to mark your body and you know and so we've got these issues that that continue it's not any longer about whether or not we eat meat that's in a you know that's being sold in the in the temple or in, in the markets but we still have these these gray areas you know the dress and the modesty of dress and you know and how what what's the standard that you know that a christian should hold and you know and so you've got this this vast array and and in the area you know of christian liberty you know, I believe that the Word of God teaches that the answer is your own conscience and what the Lord is convicting you of. And a legalist is when God says that you shouldn't do something, and that's, and that's for you. But then you say, because God said that I shouldn't do it, nobody else should do it. And now you try and take the conviction that you have in an area that we don't have clear cut and scriptural, and you start to put that and create that as the standard. And, and so the, the, the arguing of those standards. Now, you know, when it comes to a person's conscience, we wanna respect and honor their conscience. Now, there are actions that, that are gateway actions. And we all came out of a, a life of you, you know, didn't grow up in the church and you were in the world and got saved. And, and there were sin and sin patterns, you know, and, and, and it might start with, you know, you, you start, you know, uh, I don't know, watching, you know, a movie. And then from the movie, you, when you're watching a movie, you have to eat ice cream. And then when you eat ice cream, you have to put a chew in. And then when you put a chew in, then you're on the internet and then you're gambling. And then the next thing you know, all of this started because you watched a movie. And so there's a conviction in your heart that, you know what? I probably shouldn't watch a movie. I should probably just, that probably isn't a, a, a good thing for me. And then your friend says, hey, come on, let's go to the movies. And you're like, I, you know what, I just don't, I don't think that I should be watching it. They're like, why? Christ died to set you free. You know, you're allowed to watch movies. And now, what, what are they doing? They're, they're trying to talk you out of the conviction that you've got that, but movies for them doesn't stumble them in the least bit. And so for them, they've got full freedom. And so, you know, what, what Paul is saying is that when you, when you love somebody, Right? You're going to do what's in their best interest. And, and God is going to put up different fences in our lives around different backgrounds that we came out of and different gateways. And, and when God puts a gateway around you, it's for your protection. But don't take your gate and then make it the standard and try and tell everybody else that that should be the gate for, for them. And, and so, you know, what commends us isn't what we eat or what we don't eat. It's, whether, it's not whether we watch the movie or we don't watch the movie. 
What the Bible teaches is this. If God brings a conviction that this is sin, and you do it, that becomes sin. Even if the action itself is not a sinful action. The clean conscience, the pure conscience versus the defiled conscience, and then loving others to help them stay within the boundaries that God has placed for them. That's what love looks like. Not just do we have the freedom to do it. It's not just a liberty issue. It's how does my exercise of the liberty that I have, how does that affect uh, uh, somebody else that may be struggling or wrestling or come out of uh, these other sinful patterns that, that have no effect or attraction on, uh, on me in my life. And so back to loving one another, serving one another, taking care of each other in our homes, in our marriages, with our loved ones, with believers that are around us. It's not a self-centered, selfish freedoms. It's now about loving and serving others. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And God, we ask that you would continue to, to help us to grow in the grace and, and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And, and Father, that you are leading each one of us step by step to, to follow you. And, and so that work of sanctification in our life looks differently for each and every one of us. But you are the one that is molding us into the image and likeness of Christ. And so, Lord, in these areas of, uh, of freedoms and, and rights, would you help us to walk graciously and, and to learn how to pleasing unto you and to love others? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.